Welcome back to Many Windows, the podcast about education for everyone who cares about education. My name is John Cassie, and I'm joined as always by my dear friend and co-host Jennifer McGlimmery. Jennifer, how are you? I'm great, John. How are you? Living the dream. The last episode, uh, the first episode of season four, was uh, beginning our season of myth breaking. There you go. Okay. And our last episode was about the myth of failure. Mm-hmm which I think you can probably agree is a kind of myth that transcends its transcends time. Mm-hmm. It's not particularly timely. The myth we're talking about today is really of our time. And that is the myth of pandemic learning loss. Right now, both Jennifer and I come from from a perspective where we would argue that the notion that we are, quote, losing a generation of students is preposterous. It's indefensible and ridiculous. The whole argument is irrational. So we're going to go through our our kind of argument about why it's irrational. Um, one of the, and there's going to be a lot of citations uh, on the show notes, folks. So if you want to see some of the articles that we're talking about, there'll be lots of links uh, available to you. But one of the articles that I read made this point, which I thought is super salient. If everyone is having the same experience, literally globally, how can anyone be behind? <laughs> behind what? Right. And, uh, uh, and, you know, my contention and their contention is that this is, kind of classic reemergence or a, a, a surviving uh, construct of assembly line thinking mm-hmm. as though children are cogs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you haven't sent them down the assembly line, you know, in a timely manner, they're, they're never going to get, they're never going to get done. Right. And there's lots of, there's lots of evidence that suggests that that, makes no sense. And, uh, you know, and it isn't defensible. So Jennifer, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that the first thing we have to grapple with is, is learning what, learning right? when, what? You say, yeah. when you say learning loss, that specifically means there is material that should have been covered that there wasn't time to cover. Yeah. Well, then that begs the question, is that really what we're doing now in education? Or maybe I should say still doing in education? Is it the learning is only about material covered? Because right. we now live in an age where all of the information is available to everybody at their fingertips with the internet, right? Yep. We yep. don't need to just Cover. memorize facts right, and then regurgitate them. I hope that that's not what we think learning is, memorizing facts and regurgitating. And so I hope that we don't think that because they the students didn't have as much time with the material, they didn't learn as much. But I guess my argument for, for what we're going to talk about today has to do with what about the other things that were learned during this yeah. time? Okay. And that we're learning, I would call them learning gains. Yeah. So I want to we'll, talk about that too. Yeah, we'll 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 do those at the end mm-hmm. because I, I've got a little segue that mm-hmm. I think will segue us into what you're talking about. Okay, um, so we're going to expand the theme here a little bit. Learning loss itself is a myth. Mm-hmm. Learning gain during pandemic times is something that hasn't really been explored. And it, it, it's the sort of thing that will be in the fullness of time 10 years from now when people are, are, are writing sort of balanced, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. kind of histories of the era. And they look at the education questions, the things that, that ultimately we got right as a society, the things that we didn't get right. Um, I, I suspect that they'll bring up many of the things that you're going to cite, Jennifer, right? Mm-hmm. So l- just getting getting to it. Okay, first off, uh, learning 2019, 2020, 2021, messy. Mm. It's always messy though. Yeah. Right? It, it, it is always, uh, it, 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 for every individual student, 
there's times of very rapid progression Mm -hmm. in one discipline, maybe, but stuck on something else. And then two years later, they make progress in that other discipline and they sort of fall back on the other, or they kind of go a long way in, in lots of things. And then they kind of get stuck. That has nothing to do with a pandemic. They're not, they're not a, they're not part of a lost generation. They're just living. I think that that's always true. Yeah. When our teachers talk about it amongst themselves, because I do hear particularly some of my friends that are kinder and first grade teachers. Yeah. Right. And they, they feel that, you know, they're first graders. It's as if the kindergarten year was lost, right? Like that they didn't have it. It didn't happen. But what, you know, what they were hoping, what really happens in kindergarten is kids learn how to be in school, which often equates to sitting in a desk, sitting focused, sustained attention on an activity. And they haven't had to do that Uh, They also haven't had to learn in a group where there's one adult who can only give attention to one student at a time. Uh, Kids that were at home had a lot of times a one-to-one with an adult there able to swoop in and help out. So I think there are some things, there are some skills that could be delayed in kids. And one of those things might be that resiliency, that persistence to a task. Yeah. Um, the, the sustained focus, um, maybe, you know, uh, here's where I'm not quite, here's where I'm, I'm wondering, because if you remember right before we had the pandemic and everything shut down, you and I were talking a lot about, and we were going around and talking with groups about, um, Uh, technology use, you know, how much is too much for kids, you know, cell phone, social media, computers, you know, kids are spending too much time on their computers. What should we do? How much is too much? Right. I always think about this because then boom, next thing we know, everybody has to stay home and do everything through their computer. They socialize, they learn everything is now that we're, they're on screens for hours and hours and hours a day. Right. With its own problems. So, you know, some of those problems that we had identified and what people already knew about kids and everybody being on screens that long were what what could we do? It was our only way of connecting with one another. Right. uh, And going to work and uh, going to school. Right. And there was no way around it. But I think we felt that that screen fatigue yep really clearly uh we also figured out that kids don't actually want to be on the computer all day even though they no. say they do yeah yeah uh yeah the the technology fatigue yeah I, I i don't think that's a i don't think that's a myth at all right right and i i'm not saying i don't think jennifer's saying that hybrid Zoom school mm. is something that we want to we want to go back to. It, it's 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 worthy of a critique, right? Yeah. I would I would make two points though to to to, to the folks who are uh, it, it, their beef is with screens, right? One, if this pandemic had happened in 1990, not not 2020, it would have been worksheets being sent home. Yeah. True. And correspondence and letters and telephone calls. Okay, so how would that have been? Mm-hmm. Okay, because there would have been no way to mm-hmm. technologically mediate, right? So, an imperfect solution that is a kludge, but it gets us through the worst of it, is surely better than mail and home worksheets, mm-hmm. right? And we did, we did some of that. Like I I know uh, all of our elementary schools had packets and the teachers prepared the packets. Parents came and picked them up weekly. The next week they would switch them out. 
but the piece that we wouldn't have had 20, 30 years ago is the instruction through the computer. Right. That way right. it would have really just been homeschooling with right. the parent as teacher and the teacher is just preparing essentially curriculum right. and worksheets. Right. And, you know, we're not going to go into it in, in, in this episode, but there are, there are examples going back a hundred years of correspondence courses, yeah. correspondence instruction. There were uh, extraordinarily important to the development of the internet online learning systems that were developed at universities in the Midwest that shaped a generations of technology developers, computer developers. Now, these are tools more for adults mm. than for seven-year-olds, mm -hmm. right? But I think when, you, when we get to the kind of the completion of this episode, the, the presence of the screens actually helps to mitigate some of the bigger problems while adding some of their own. But at the end of the day, screens don't cause or contribute to, you know, learning, learning loss, right? It's a separate question, right? What do you, what do you see as the bigger problems that, that they cause? That screens cause? Yeah. Yep. Um, they, the, maybe the way they're utilized. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's such a different kind of modality. Mm -hmm. It's much better if it's individualized. And when you're trying to convert from whole class instruction to technological, entirely technological instruction with virtually no time to, to do it, to practice it, to see what is working for you and what doesn't. Mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. it's the worst kind of flying the plane um, while you're building it problem, yeah. right? Uh, and I, I think that that is the, the, the biggest challenge, uh, quite apart from the fact that there are tens of millions of people in the United States, just in the United States, that have no access to reliable internet technology, right? right. So they're, you know, they're, they're, they've got a, you know, a 12 year old iPhone and they're sitting, trying to get the Wi-Fi at the McDonald's sitting in their car. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, um, that's, that's a tragedy that is revealed by the pandemics. Yeah. Um, uh, impact. Yeah. On yeah. education. Right. Um, so problem one with this argument, uh, you know, it learning is messy. Okay. Problem two, the, the science that is cited all over the news and the internet and what have you that purports to establish this is, is bad. Okay. It's bad. It's, 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 uh, research that doesn't actually hold up if you if you drill into it and it's used to hype an agenda that is political not educational right mm -hmm. um peter green is a forbes columnist okay? and forbes is certainly no liberal rag right uh he 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 says fake science it turns out is great for marketing. Okay. So he talks about this testing company called NWEA that in April of 2020, before really anything is, uh, you know, is sort of fully clear what's going on. You know, we're, we're, we're weeks into lockdown, not, not 15 months, right? This, this uh, report that they issue in 2020 that, everyone latches onto turns out to be totally meaningless. Stanford University Center for Research on Educational Outcomes um, analyzed this report, uh, issued a statement about learning loss, uh, and uh, made this uh, sort of great conclusion that students were, were, were missing out on, they lost 50, 57 days of, of instruction, right? But when you actually look at the research, 
it's all guesswork. Mm. It's scientifically grounded estimates, which, you know, in, in my, you know, in my argument, that's not data, right? You're just guessing. Well, you're also making another assumption that time in seat equals learning. Correct. And I mean, that's where I, I feel we, we have revealed quite a thing about quite a bit about teaching and learning parents. I, I would say this all the time. It's like they're, the parents are getting to see how the sausage is made. And, right. and it was shocking for people. Uh, but the reality is just because a child is at school for six, seven hours a day doing that seat time, it does not mean they are actually learning. Right. during that time. Right. We are housing them. We are, we are presenting information. Sometimes movies are being watched. I don't even know. Like I just think about today, you know, we have, we've been doing COVID testing um, once a week at my school and we do a different subject each week. And so this week it was in PE. So they, the kids, they don't have to dress out. Nobody dresses out for PE today. They just do free play so that all the kids who are signed up for COVID testing can go do COVID testing. So there's a day lost of PE instruction right there. Right, I mean, right. we, can, we can think of so many different situations like that during a regular normal school year where time is not maximized and you know that the hours that they're sitting at school don't equate... Uh, the learning for that exact amount of time. So how do you even do a calculation to say this many days? You can say, yeah, this much time was not spent in school or doing school. Right. And and yet just being in school doesn't mean you're doing school or learning. Right, right. Uh, Another Forbes columnist, uh, John Ewing, the president of Math for America said, uh, but yeah, but what, what is this? What does that actually mean? five months of learning lost, 50 days lost. What's lost? Are students forgetting facts, skills, or memories erased? Can they find what's lost? Uh, Mathematical formulas are only as good as the data that goes into them. Math isn't magic. When people discuss learning loss, they generally don't know the answers to any of the critical questions. And the notion itself, learning gain, the notion of learning gain Mm-hmm. is so vague, it can't be so easily and precisely measured. Mm-hmm. So if the first place you start is most of the quote unquote science, and literally if you go type learning loss into a search engine, you're going to find that NWEA report and the Stanford report, and then McKinsey's report on that report. And that is just going to power you through like a warp engine in Star Trek, but it's meaningless. Mm -hmm. So if there's no science, on what basis do you make, do you make your argument, right? Third point. Have you heard of the statistical anomaly called weird, Jennifer? No. Okay, so there's this rising notion of perception within social science research. And you and I, we're trained social science researchers, Mm -hmm. right? That there are grave problems in the education, sociology, psychology fields with their, their data analysis, in part because of weird. And what weird means is too many people being studied Hmm. are Western, Hmm. educated, (laughs) industrial, Hmm. rich, and democratic. Hmm. Okay. We've built a society that is not one that the overwhelming majority of people on this planet live in what's going on in these other cultures and societies and spaces where learning has far more valences Mm -hmm. than we give it in our Western educated, industrial, rich, democratic societies. 
Okay. That's fascinating. So our societies themselves are looking for things that in the time of, of uh, the pandemic lockdown, our culture wasn't giving. And so we draw a universal human conclusion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from the experience of what a billion and three quarters million people live in weird societies, mm-hmm. you know, United States, Germany, Japan, blah, blah, blah. Right. Most people don't. Right. Okay. So they had lockdowns and they had, they had other issues. No, no reporting, no data, no analysis. So maybe in 10 years, we will, you know, when we're recording season 15, we'll come back to this episode and say we were wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. now that we've done longitudinal studies, properly constituted studies that look at children across the world, oh, look, it, it, it actually was an issue. Right. Or it, it, it seemed to be one. But uh, if, if you if you try to base an argument on just the experience of of people like us, which these arguments do, you're 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 dead. Mm-hmm. Right. And, it, you know, yeah, go. I was just going to say that I guess my overall point that I'm trying to make less eloquently is basically how narrowly we are defining learning loss. Yeah. Right. Like even even the uh, scientific research is still narrowly defining even by the sample that it takes. Yeah. Let alone the questions that they're asking and how they're they're prompting this information and what other kind of exclusionary factors are not taken into account. Right. So, yeah. It's going to require some longitudinal studies right. that go beyond just a few countries. Yeah, for sure. Right. And, and in countries like the United States, you get these, you, 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 we, we're working from a definition of what education is and its purpose mm-hmm. that captures aspects of life that a generation ago, maybe we're not captured or two generations ago, or that outside of weird countries is not, is not captured. Mm-hmm. I, I read a blog post from a, um, an early childhood educator and consultant named Ray Pika. And she says, uh, apparently most adults now believe that having missed a few months of what they shouldn't have been doing in the first place Children are doomed. This phrase, learning loss, is on everyone's lips. Last week, I read an article about the devastating learning loss preschoolers are experiencing. I'm sorry, how devastating can it be? The ability to meet unrealistic standards imposed on them by people who don't understand child development, including the ridiculous expectation that they read and write by the end of kindergarten? Um, the young ones who until recently were never part of schooling in mm-hmm. the first place mm-hmm. have always managed to do just fine. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why so many parents and policymakers have concluded that children who don't spend their early years in an academic setting will fall behind and remain that way for life. Fall behind in what? Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is the point about the the values of the society Mm. are new to this generation, preschool learning loss, come on. Right. And, and they are unique to our, to our, our context. Right. If you really want to understand learning loss in children, you got to have, you got to have more to draw on than, than our present argument does. It was interesting because I just today happened to receive an email that were, it was the minutes from this conversation that our superintendent does with parents, the PTA called mm-hmm. Let's Talk, right? So it was the questions and answers from the Let's Talk. And the first question 
from the parents was about this idea of learning loss, but it was, it was not necessarily stated in that way, but what the parent was saying was that they had noticed with it, probably within their group, uh, that their high school students, that high school students who traditionally have been getting A's and B's all their lives are now getting B's and C's, that their GPA has dropped. Interesting. Um, and so the question was really, you know, can you look at this across the schools and the grade levels and give us an idea of how much the GPAs have dropped um, from last year to this year or the year before that, you know, to this year, particularly last year to this year. And the interesting thing was then there was a chart that had the GPAs in Ah. 11th and 12th grade. They hadn't changed at all. Interesting. So, you know, uh, now that may turn out to be an indictment on grades and grade point average. I was just going to say, we're going to do a whole episode. I know on grades. Correct. Uh, um, But I think that it's it. So there's that's another thing, again, that it's like, well, what are is it learning that's lost or is it, um, you know, this achievement, perceived achievement? Right. That now maybe the students, after having a year and a half, two years at home, have are not buying into these same achievement standards. Right. I know a lot of adults who are making big life changes after this pandemic. They want right. to work closer to home. They want to, you know, live yep. somewhere yep. where they can get a bigger house, right? People are moving up. People are reevaluating their lives. So why would we think that students aren't also reevaluating themselves as students mm-hmm. in the same way? Do they, you know, are they going to put the same level of importance and stress and um, emotional and mental energy and, um, ultimately, you know, stress, uh, on themselves for, for these classes for, to get these perfect scores, to get these straight A's. Maybe right. we have some kids that are just not buying into that anymore. Right. Right. And are saying right. B's are okay. Or, you know, I'm not going to take all AP classes because I really want to have some time to enjoy uh, my friends or my family or this extracurricular that I love. Right. So I'm I'm wondering if that's just a a shift that's happening in students as well. Sorry, John, I was. No, 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 no. Uh, I, I, I think that that. That you're you're bringing out one of the points that I was going to raise. Um, next, which is that the argument about learning loss doesn't account for uh, real life questions that are uh, that are beyond the the scope of what the learning loss question cares about, mm-hmm. but that might actually have a bearing on choices that young people are making and families are making that that might read in a badly designed study. Mm-hmm. or in a politicized uh, argument as learning loss, right? Mm-hmm. And we've, we encounter, we, you know, we, we've, we've come through a world historical collective human traumatic experience. Nothing like it since 1918. Mm-hmm. And we have lost as a as a Western people the uh, the social framework where children die routinely in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. childbirth and mothers die in childbirth, and half the children who are born and live to age one are dead by age five. This is not the world we live in, right? Mm-hmm. And so this this reality is going to be profoundly shaping of decisions which has nothing to do with what you may or may not have learned of the trajectory of life you were on or you weren't on, right? It's going to ask you to raise, you are going to raise new questions about your life if, you know, if you're a 17 or an 18 year old, right? Yeah. And you're going to be 
raised in a family situation as a five or six-year-old, where your parents maybe are making some choices that they might otherwise not have made, right? I read this book uh, last year called Post Corona, hmm. and I can't remember the I can't remember the author, but he's a he's a you know he's a futurist and thinker, right? And he said, "I'm I'm close if I'm not dead on." Many of the changes that we're going to that we're going to see very soon are going to be rapidly accelerated in the time it takes for that social change to happen. Because of the pandemic, it will be like one month is the equivalent of one year, right? So you're going to get 10 years of change in one year because the nature of the pandemic itself causes radical change in certain areas, Mm -hmm. right? Very interesting book. Um, well, I, I think that that has come up in the, in what we call the DEI movement, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And yeah. just, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement that happened while we were all in the pandemic and were, it somehow felt different this time mm-hmm. and coming out of it feels different because even as uh, as we're starting to have conversations trying to have real authentic conversations about um our own prejudice you know as as white people um yep there have been so many instances when we should have had these conversations before and there have been so many instant things that have happened and deaths and examples of injustice so many before like why this one why this time right and I, I think that in addition to several people, or maybe it's a, a culmination of, of a number of people that we're all remembering together, but there's something about us being home and being in this pandemic. Yeah. I, uh, that, that the point that you're just making right now, that's what I think of. That's where it rings, rings true to me. Like, yeah, yeah. I noticed that with this DEI movement and we're finally making some traction. I th- right. In addition, we're making traction in our schools with, you know, um, gender equity and, right. you know, those like that feels accelerated to me too, coming out yep. of the pandemic. Yep. So that's yep. real. that's really interesting. Right. Yeah. In, in another column, the Peter Green, that Forbes columnist, right. Wrote, The truth is we know that learning does not steadily drip out of the human head when a human is not in a classroom. The truth is we have no way of knowing the cumulative effects of the personal family traumas, Mm -hmm. the air of distress, and the many varied versions of distance or hybrid learning, nor face-to-face learning under pandemic restraints. We don't even have a good record of which students have been through what experiences. The best solution to learning loss is the one that is already deployed, a workforce of trained, concerned adults spread across the country, collectively set up to talk to, evaluate, and teach every single child, wherever that child happens to be. Mm-hmm. Now, that's what I hope we take away from this, mm-hmm. this experience is that we commit ourselves as a people to spend the money to make the experience of being a learner more personal, mm-hmm. more individualized. Because if you have a great teacher who's committed to just enough students that they can know all of them really well, then there's no such thing as learning loss because anything that is lost from this period can be remediated. If we think we can go back to what we were doing in 2018 as though nothing happened, Mm. we are going to buy a whole host of problems that we don't want and we can't identify at this stage. So we can't prep to fix them. Mm. But I'm confident that one of the things that we don't have to do is worry about learning loss Mm -hmm. because it's not a thing. Well, and you know, one of my favorite educational researchers, anybody who knows me well knows that I'm in love with John Hattie. Yes. Uh (laughs) Yeah. You, you, you are, you are a a partisan. Yes, I am. Mr. Hattie. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'll, I will move to New Zealand at any time. 
word. To be, yes, absolutely. So, but he, so he wrote visible learning and, yep. you know, did this huge meta analysis on influences on achievement and came up with this uh, looks kind of like a fuel gauge to report different things and having a negative influence on achievement and a positive. And so right. not only did he show things like what's the negative, <laughs> negative influence of, or correlations of a low birth weight, or, you know, these influences in the home and the school and the curriculum in a, a, a teacher's classroom, a, a teaching style, all these things that he looked at. And some of them reduced the speed of learning. Yep. And, and yet there are other things that doubled the speed of learning yeah. by simply employing things in school. Personalization was one of those, um, relation, you know, teachers knowing their students, giving, um, excellent feedback, having that feedback loop with their students, these doubled the speed of learning. So yeah. there have always been things that we've done in schools that are not effective, or we're mitigating for things that are outside of our control. Right. And in America, I think we've just always, we've never fought a war on our soil. And it, not for 160 years, right? Not, yep. not against another another country right well not for not for 210 years obviously yeah well, yeah no your point is well taken away. right but i'm just thinking about the ukraine right now and other countries where their lives have been interrupted by war yeah. and that goes on for many years right and you know are they as soon as that's over are they getting a bunch of scientists together to talk about learning loss no <laughs> Right. So, um, right. It's almost it's, it's almost a privileged way of thinking. Yeah. Now. Now. Yeah. To your point. Right. I did some I did a little bit of looking for studies on. Uh, localized trauma. Mm -hmm. OK. And I found a study and I'm going to cite it in the show notes uh, that deeply studied the survivors of the. Utoya Norway shootings in 2011, if you remember them. Oh, okay. uh huh. Uh, and that study said there was a significant impact measurable on student functioning, abilities, confidence, achievement mm -hmm. uh, of the surviving students mm. out to year one. But by and large, no evidence of no evidence of the trauma by the end of year two. Hmm. Everyone who completed high school, and there were some who didn't, right? Uh, and they didn't really track that. So this is potentially an area where some of their findings maybe need to be revisited. But everyone who completed high school graduated on or above their grade level as defined in, you know, in Norway, um, what clearly helped them was intense, ongoing, personalized support. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's what we're not going to get if we think we can go back to what we did. Right. Because we haven't built classrooms and support structures that are aligned that way. Right. We spend money on on other things, policing, restraint, control, not support, not restoration, not nurturing. And we we need to we need to think about that. Well, and I know you want to talk about what students have learned that maybe isn't measured in mm -hmm. a, a traditional way. I also want to talk about what we as educators have learned. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, that's what you're getting into right there that I'm also interested in is what we have learned coming out of this pandemic so that we can create better schools. And, you know, th think the irony is it's things that have been researched and written about and, professional right. developments have been taught on. And right. I joke that it take, it has taken a pandemic to get us 
to do some of these things. Right, right. I mean, look, I, I think that what we are dealing with, it's not learning loss. I think it's grief over what has been lost. Yes. Okay. Um, there's this ACEs quote from Associate Professor of Literary Education at UConn, Rachel Gabriel. She says, it is a loss of a previously imagined trajectory leading to a previously imagined future. When it comes to K-12 schooling, the truth is some of us are more used to interruptions than others. Those who move around a lot are living between two countries or experienced a major injury, illness, or are chronically ill. And even those who have just changed schools once know what loss feels like, Mm -hmm. but it isn't a loss of learning. That's what really, it actually brilliant. is, is a social loss. Yeah, absolutely. Kid, kids miss the rough and tumble of being with their friends. Yeah. That has been lost. And Zoom doesn't do it. No. Now, I, you know, anyone who's listened to this show or has listened to me on other, on other shows, you know, I, I have no objection to digitally mediated social spaces you know, Minecraft, Discord servers, they're all great, but but almost no kid does best when that's it. Right. They want well, that what, and uh, it's a yes and. That's right? what we discovered. Right. That's what we discovered. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and the social loss is 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 what is profound. Yeah. And if we focus on learning loss, mm-hmm. right, we won't put any attention on social disruption, yeah. which is what actually matters. Exactly. And that's a huge problem. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, we came out of this as educators that were paying attention, understanding more about trauma and its impact. Right. on students right and and we're learning about that what we need to do as educators how to weave in the social emotional learning in yep. schools and how important that is and we're spending a lot more time talking about mental health and doing not not as a separate entity outside of the school but bringing it into the school and into the classroom. Yes. And that's what we're going to have to do more of. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe down the road, uh, you know, we put together an episode on, uh, on not myths, but, you know, bedrock, take it to the bank, Mm -hmm. rock of Gibraltar stuff. Right. Right. Um, But to, to me that, that, across the board it's the social yeah and and i think for for teachers they feel their students struggles very acutely i mean mm-hmm. my my colleagues who 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 are paying attention to this that's what they struggle with right they they can they can overcome oh yeah they didn't they didn't get the constitution last year Right. Or they didn't get this quadratic formula thing. It's not a problem. I, I've got a way. Can I can mm-hmm. I can I can get that. We're good. We're, we're good. We're good. Mm-hmm. What I can't do is overcome the uh, the the melancholy of the student who was really damaged by a year of Zoom and who hasn't who hasn't rallied from it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and uh, also the flip side, which the kind of student we never talk about the kind of student who was doing just fine Mm -hmm. in, in a, in a zoom environment and now is trying to find an online school. That's really great for him or her, or who's struggling with being back physically in the school where they never wanted to be in the first place. Right. So school refusal Mm-hmm. Is now a very uh, 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 a very complex problem mm-hmm. because it's coming in part from from kind of one angle or part from another angle. It doesn't seem to be just one thing. Well, and we told it, yeah. 
we told kids who are in their formative years that the air you breathe can kill you. The surfaces you touch can kill you. You need to be wearing a mask and washing your hands 58 times a day with soap and water for 20 seconds and wiping down everything you touch. We spent a year making them feel afraid of everything. Yeah. And then we're like, okay, that's done. Take your mask off. Go back. Be in a classroom full of kids. Don't worry about it anymore. And for kids who've only lived seven or eight years. Yeah. It feels like a profound betrayal of trust. Yes. Right. And no so one can head. Yeah. We still have kids that are unsure. And then coupled with, you know, these spikes and surges. And right. oh, now we're back to wearing masks. Oh, you know, the back and forth. It's so confusing for them. And so, of course, we're seeing again a rise in anxiety in kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Understandably so. This was already a problem before the pandemic. Yeah. We've, I'm sure we've done an episode. I'm sure if not a full episode, we've talked about it. Anxiety. Absolutely. In kids, the rising rates. Yeah. And why that is now we've, it's just even more, even more. Right. Right. So, um, so to, to me, the argument, every minute we spend arguing about learning loss is Mm -hmm. a minute spent not talking about what actually matters. Yeah. And we do this, uh, we do this better than, than anyone else on the planet. We have literally uh, the equivalent of the Cuyahoga river on fire in 1969, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to make something up that isn't real. And we're going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. let's continue to generate ridiculous and baseless moral panics over God knows what mm-hmm. suck all the oxygen out of the conversation, redirect smart people's attention towards deflecting the arguments of the foolish. And the consequence of that, of course, is that young people will suffer yeah, and schools will suffer. Well, John, you're really bringing me down right now. Sorry. I think we need to hear about some of those gains. Yeah. That, so, uh, so, so talk about that. So a few that I, I actually had read this article not too long ago, written by a superintendent. And, you know, he was, he, his name is Ben Churchill. And it was a, just an article in a leadership magazine called Don't Call It a Lost Year. Mm-hmm. And so he says, you know, that some of the gains is just, is using technology in schools. That was what I would, we've been talking about it for 20 years, using more technology, up-to-date technology in schools, using these resources that are out there, fun things like Cahoots and just all these uh, Google Classrooms, things like that, the benefits that there are to some of these. And for some teachers, they just uh, thought they would never, ever be able to figure it out. And now they had to figure it out. And now they're, they've learned it. And they have a whole new bag of tricks that right. they can use. And hopefully... You know, our desire was we come back to school, they do some of the things that they're used to doing in person and sprinklings in some of the new technology that they've learned to make their, uh, their classrooms more engaging. Um, sadly, what I'm, start- what I'm seeing this year is a lot of, you know, kids on computers at school in class all day. And I'm hoping that is that pendulum is going to swing and yeah. we're going to get away from that. But we did. We learned a lot about um, tools that were out there. And our kids, of course, became mm-hmm. great. In a, if that's a 21st century skill right there. Um, making presentations. Uh, oh, yeah. Collaborating with yeah. other people in a digital format like this. Yep. You know, the, we know the jobs of the future. A lot of people are going to have to be able to do that. Yep. Yep. Uh, in, in, in fact, we might conclude down the road that the upside of this Zoom stuff is a much deeper capacity for 
rapid critical thinking mm. that is the only thing that's going to save careers, certain kinds of careers or jobs from being replaced by artificial intelligences or being automated, right? So we, we may in 2045 look back on this and say, that was dreadful, but look at this through line of thinking these Generation Zs seem to have a different way of going about their, their life by virtue of their experience. And where they congregate, those careers resist automation in very interesting ways. I was covering a class this morning mm -hmm. uh, for, it was an eighth grade science class and the teacher had left this what was called a web quest, but it was basically like a link to an article and then some questions to answer. And it was a gifted class and the kids were all working quietly. And then at one point I saw a couple of kids kind of talking to one another and, you know, and then a couple more kids they were talking and I went over and I'm like, what's going on, you guys, like this article that's linked, it doesn't have the answers. And I was like, oh my gosh. Oh, nice. <laughs> I so I was like, come on, you guys, are you telling me you don't know how to find the answers if it's not right there in the article in front of you? you know, so I started giving them a hard time. Right, I was like, goading aren't, them. Aren't we building critical thinking skills? Is this all we're teaching you guys how to do is to read an article and then verbatim uh, fill right. in the blanks of right. the question? And so right. I was teasing them about that. And I was like, oh, man, we've really done a terrible job if this is, you know, what right. you think education is all about. So they got they got to where like, oh, I found this article and I found this article. And then we were, you know, then it was so funny because there was one question and this is it was a topic I knew nothing about. And it was something about fossils and this okay. tongue stone that had been found. And was it, you know, okay. was it actually a shark's tooth or a dinosaur's tooth? Right. Oh, no, neat. I know. So then we have this robust discussion because. Some kids are like, well, in this article, it said it's a dinosaur tooth or a, dino mm -hmm. a dinosaur, I think, tooth, actually. Dinosaur. Oh, no, no. The article that I read said it's a shark's tooth. Mm. And we never did figure out what the right answer was because the question was worded so that it said, ultimately, what was it discovered? What was discovered? And I was like, well, th isn't this aren't we learning something right here about sources mm -hmm. and scientific um revelations and right we we have to look and see when these things were written and we've got to right. compare them and right. uh then ultimately they, well, what was discovered is we don't know yeah i mean maybe right. if if we could if we had the time we could have gotten there yeah by this time the kids were rolling their eyes at me you know they're like, <laughs> come on we we got five minutes left of class just let us finish this and i was like no yeah. but isn't this fascinating apparently it wasn't fascinating to them, but I was excited. That's all that matters. But yeah, I want to, there, it's so ripe for uh, this next step of not just giving kids the article and then the questions to find the answer to from that article. You know, they have the tools now to be able to do research and we have to teach them to evaluate sources and determine credibility and reliability. And how do you do that? Right. right. That's that I really think is what our social science and English teachers have got to be spending more and more time doing. Totally. As, right. Totally. As we're, as we're moving into the next decade after this one, that's got to be the focus. Yeah, for sure. And what I else? think that in the, the other things that we've learned, we have learned that we have to put mental health and emotional health front and center mm -hmm. and that we legitimize the time spent in this area. That's that's another key uh, takeaway from this pandemic. Um, and then as I was talking about these, the the diversity, equity and inclusion conversations, right. I, I see that we've refocused on equity and having difficult conversations, the importance yeah. of doing this. I think for a long time, we've avoided it in schools. Right Now we realize we can't just avoid it, but we all need to learn how to be comfortable in uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's something that we're learning as well. Um, and just communication that there's a lot of different ways to do communication now. So this is uh, parents attending meetings. Do they have to be in person? Right. How many more parents attended PTA meetings when it was all on Zoom? Because right. it was easier for them to do that. So how can we take the best of both worlds now, that hybrid solution right. of having the in-person socializing and camaraderie, but the right. access for people who can't leave their kids or, you know, are, are at a soccer game or something, but can actually tune into the PTA meeting now on their phone. Right. Right. So we, exactly. we, we've expanded, we've started thinking in new ways about how we as schools communicate with parents um, and engage them in the work that we do. Totally. Yeah. Couldn't be more true. Um, what else? What would you say our students have come out of this pandemic gaining? Well, I, I think that ultimately it's going to be a much deeper resilience. It isn't that yet. Right. But I think it will be because I think when the next thing that happens to an individual happens, Mm-hmm. They will remember their journey through the difficult path of the pandemic and realize I, I made it through that. And I like to think that it's also empathy that they're yeah. learning, right? Yep. Um, to the point I was trying to make about how, you know, we've been fortunate in our last few generations of not having to face a war on our soil right is that now as they are listening to um or learning about history and even current events um refugees having to flee their city and Mm -hmm. what a disruption that is um i think that they suddenly have can have a little more empathy um, for people in those kind of situations, because they had to go through a difficult time too. Yeah, totally right. Totally right. Um, I think a greater appreciation of humanity shared over national borders Mm -hmm. is something Mm -hmm. that I think this generation is much more wired for that than all previous generations in the West. And I hope that it leads to a reversal of some of our more um, nationalistic, xenophobic mm-hmm. uh, tendencies that are expressing themselves in some of our Western societies in 2022, right? Um, not, not just in the United States, but, uh, you know, in, in, in other places, right? But... I think I think resilience and empathy are the ones that come come first to my mind, and and we'll see, right? Perhaps a greater capacity for and and interest in change, a greater a greater interest in seeking what is novel, because they they didn't get uh, that social year mm. of trying things out. Maybe they'll have a greater interest in that. I'm not sure. Final thoughts. I like what you said about not focusing on this imagined learning that was lost or information that wasn't gained during this time and being distracted by that. Right. And instead refocusing on the real areas that were lost and the social component and, you know, and the social emotional impact. And let's, let's be accurate about what really was lost. Correct. Focus on that instead of being distracted by this thing that is, is not real. You've got it. Yeah. That this was a professor, Rachel Gabriel, right? It's the loss Mm -hmm. of a previously imagined trajectory leading to a previously imagined future. I have no problem with saying People need to move through a process of grief that centers not on uh, people in their family that they've lost from COVID-19 or from other 
from other issues. But when, when a path forward is disrupted or shut down, it is entirely appropriate to have a grief process where you reflect on what you now will not have or you won't have in the same way that you, that you might otherwise have it. Um, and then what are you going to do next? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 yesterday we're recording this on Wednesday, April 21st, 2022. Yesterday I went with my sister to see Molly Shannon, Saturday night live comedian. She's just written a new memoir. Hello, Molly. Uh, and she wanted to see her uh, and, you know, Molly Shannon, I, I don't really watch SNL. So uh, I was like, sure, I'll go with you. Right. It's a, it's a book thing, right? Of course, uh, books. <laughs> sure. I'll go to a book thing. Right. And this was and just amazing. She is ridiculously talented as a storyteller. It was an hour. I could have listened to her talk for a day. Right. She told the story about her first pass through an audition process to get onto SNL. Mm. And it, it didn't work, right? And she's not 23 at this time. She's like 40, mm. right? And and it, it doesn't work. She, she doesn't mm. get a callback, nothing, right? And they don't return to this area for her to take another swing at it for five years. Wow. And she's like, I was really kind of grief stricken when they didn't even, they didn't even want to talk to me, yeah. right? And so I... I went through a process and then I recommitted to the work and building original characters and cultivating my voice. And as a result, when they came back the next time I was ready. Right. And she, you know, she talks about what she needed to do to get, to get onto that show and, and, you know, boom, and away we go. Right. Oftentimes what you are denied Mm. opens a door. You didn't even know you wanted opened. And that will transform you in ways that, that you look back on and say, thank God. Right now, I don't want to say thank God for the pandemic because, you know, F the pandemic and all the stuff it did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I don't want to go through that again, mm-hmm. but I am keeping my heart open to what I can learn from having gone through it that I otherwise wouldn't have. And I think that's the opposite of loss. I think that's a gain. Yeah. Yeah. For parents who really want to be able to control everything for their kids to give them the best possible childhood experience and protect them from everything. Here's a callback to, you know, our last episode, but parents who just out of a feeling of love and genuine Uh, wanting to save their kids from everything. It's a wake up call that we don't, we can't control everything. There are things outside of our control. What we have to do is we have to teach our kids. How do you react to losses and things that come up that you weren't expecting? What do you do? And I fear that uh, one of the negatives was we as adults may not have always been the best models through this experience mm-hmm. of how to, how to handle when things are outside of our control and we don't, you know, and rules are put in place that we have no input on and we don't like, and we don't believe in them. So we're not going to follow them. You know, there was a lot of that, that was not good modeling for kids, but I also, I saw the opposite too. I saw yep. parents, um, recognizing that I have to show my child, I have to be calm and I have to show my child how to deal with things that are out of our control. And we're going to yeah. learn something from this. Yep. Couldn't be, couldn't be more straightforward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, listeners, we hope that, that you've been given some things to think about and reflect on. And we'd love to hear your perspectives on loss and gain, and particularly this notion of social loss and maybe what you're doing in your schools to try to remediate that. Um, you know, you can, you can get in touch with me, John Cassie at gmail.com. Uh, uh, Jennifer, your contact I'm, information. 
jmclemory at gmail.com. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, we look forward to hearing your thoughts and perspectives on this. And next week, Jennifer, we are talking about the, the notion that that we are in yet another uh, era of major crisis. So what we're going to do is we're going to look back on this notion of education is a disaster and say, hmm, not so much. It's not perfect, but the idea that we're in uh, a major crisis and we have been forever is is one of the uh, it's one of the great myths mm-hmm. of our age. We're going to explore that in our next episode. So we look forward to talking to you then. Sounds great. Good to okay. see you, John, as Same. always. Okay. Thanks, folks. Bye.